Yep. Today's reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 7 to 18. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening, your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. May the Lord have his blessing. Well, great. Okay. Uh, if anyone doesn't know me, my name is Doug. Uh, I live in Exeter with my wife, Laura, and our two guinea pigs, Pavan and Panda, who couldn't be here today. Um, today, we are talking, we are continuing our series on Andy Alton's book, The Bible, A Story That Makes Sense of Life. And we have, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Sam helped us think about meaning, thinking about Genesis. Last week, Chloe helped us think about freedom and the story of the Exodus. And now, in the next section, Andy Alton puts on this idea of peace. Yeah, the theme of peace for the rest of the Old Testament. And uh, the, he quickly points out in this section of the book that his word peace in Hebrew is this word shalom. And shalom is still a very nice way of greeting someone in Hebrew. It means peace be upon you. In Arabic, it's very familiar. Salam alaikum, alaikum salam. Peace be upon you. It's also in uh, the name of the city of peace, Jerusalem, city of peace, probably the most ironically named city. And peace means, but peace means more than simply the absence of war. Tim Keller, who's a church leader and a theologian, writes this. Shalom experience is multidimensional, complete well-being. Physical, psychological, social, and spiritual, it flows from all of one's relationships being put right with God within oneself and with others. But it also means justice. So if you go to Exodus 22, in the laws concerning uh, theft, uh, you'll read about if you steal your neighbor's ox or their goat, you need to make peace with them. 
BLIV and most Bibles translate this as make restitution with, but the word is shalom. You need to make peace with them. Shalom means having everything put right, having the world put right again. It's like if you throw a rock into a pond, the pond becomes turbulent and the waves crash everywhere, but eventually the ripples ripple out and become still. And that coming to stillness is shalom. Peace and shalom is putting things back together as they were supposed to be. And the Bible is about, and the Bible and this section of the Bible in the Old Testament is about the world being put back the way it's supposed to be, or more, pointing out that the world really isn't as it's supposed to be. So, the story so far, the Israelites have been taken out of Egypt, out of slavery, and brought into the Promised Land. This is the place they were always supposed to be. God, with his people, in the place they're supposed to be, this is it. This is Shalom. Surely, surely everything's put right. No, sadly not. Through the brutal ruling of judges and kings, and then following that civil war, and then their, the country is never really at peace. And on top of that, they are attacked by Syria and Egypt and from people groups like the Philistines, eventually being conquered by Assyria and Babylon and taken out of the land they're supposed to be in, into exile again. Now, there were times of peace, like King Solomon. King Solomon was perhaps the, the greatest by earthly standards of any of Israel's kings. He built the great ancient temple, which is something that modern-day Jews want to see built again, or some of them do. Uh, he built the royal palace, the entire ancient city, before it was destroyed by Babylon, was built by Solomon. He had Israel's borders at their greatest extent. He had kings and queens from all over the world come and pay homage to him, including people like the Queen of Sheba come and pay respect to him. He had hundreds of wives and thousands of concubines. Intensive purposes, you would think, oh, this is, this, is the, this is it. This is Israel as it's supposed to be. This is the peace that we want. We have no war. In 1 Kings chapter 9, we read how Solomon achieved this. Because this kingdom that he had built was built on the back of slaves. The very thing that they were freed from in Egypt, the very thing that God has clearly got a problem with, Solomon then instigates to make his city. Peace there was, an absence of war there was, but there was not shalom. The world was not as it's supposed to be. And there steps people like Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet. When you think prophet, some of them were more like the Archbishop of Canterbury in an extinction, and a sort of a, um, an advisor to the government, and some of them are more extinction rebellion protester. Like, there's a, there's a broad mix, but they're pretty solid guys. And, and their job is telling the government what God cares about and what God's going to do about it. So an example of this is the prophet Nathan. Nathan was the prophet to King David. And after King David rapes a woman and gets her pregnant and then has her husband killed to cover it up, he, the prophet Nathan goes and tells him off says, yeah, you shouldn't have done that in a bit more harsh words than I've just said then. Can you imagine going to our government today and talking about their love lives and telling them off for it? But that was part of the job of the prophet. And Isaiah makes quite clear 
what God is angry about. So in chapter 1, as we just had, uh, if you follow on a little bit longer to verses 23 and 24, your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They love bribes. They chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel declares, I will have my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. Again, in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, we get this. The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of his people. It is you who have ruined my vineyard, the plunder from the poor in your house. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord Almighty. And again, in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Woe to you who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the, and oppress my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning, when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Nothing will remain but to cringe among the captives or fall amongst the slain. Yet for all of this, his anger has not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Isaiah, over and over again, is making a point that God is angry about injustice, about how humans treat each other, especially those who are powerless, especially those who don't have a voice, people like widows and orphans and foreigners in strange lands. And... Israel was a place full of injustice, and our world today is a place full of injustice. A year, a year and a month ago today, uh, George Floyd was murdered. And I remember when I saw the footage, all seven minutes of it, and I heard about the stories and the outcry and the protest, I was, I, it was horrifying. But part of me thought, but it's America, they're a bit wacko. We don't, we don't have that problem in, in Britain. A few days later, uh, Danny Rose, who's a football player, he currently plays for Watford, he used to play for Tottenham, has played for England in the past. He uh, was interviewed and he said this. Oh, and by the point, he, being a footballer, he's pretty well paid and drives a nice car. Someone, and being that he's been stopped in this car quite a few times because he's black. I got stopped by the police last week which is a regular occurrence whenever I go back to Doncaster, where I'm from. Each time it's, is this car stolen? Where did you get this car? What are you doing here? Can you prove that you bought this car? This has been happening since I was 18, since I was driving. And you know, each time it happens, I just laugh, because I know what's coming, it's just how it is. One of the last times I got the train, I got on with my bag, and straight away the attendant said, do you know that this is first class? I said, yeah. So what? And they said, oh, well, let me see your ticket then. So I showed the lady my ticket. And this is no word of a lie. Two white people walked on the train right after me, and she said nothing. I said, well, aren't you going to ask for their tickets? And she said, oh, well, no, I don't need to. Injustice is all around us. Sometimes it's hidden from us because it doesn't affect our gender or our class or our race, but it doesn't mean it's not there. 
And shamefully, when we do see it, sometimes we ignore it. Like when an advert comes on the TV when you see the depth of poverty looking at you and you change the channel. Or you walk past a homeless person in the street and you turn your eye away. Because in a second, you'll, just, in a second you'll, you'll forget about it and you won't have to worry about it and you won't have to feel any guilt and it's fine. It'll just go away. The problem is that God really, really cares about injustice and really cares about how we deal with injustice. As Claire Williams said a few weeks ago, God cares about the little things. He cares about the actions that we take. And God says to Isaiah, on behalf of those who do injustice, I will have my wrath upon you. So what do we do? What hope is there? Because this world is so broken. There is so much injustice. It is far too big for any of us to deal with. What can possibly be done about this? Well, Isaiah goes on to talk about that as well. In Isaiah chapter 53, which is probably the most famous chapter in the book of Isaiah, he talks about a person coming to deal with this. He talks about a person coming to deal with the brokenness and the injustice in the whole world. In, verse, in chapter 53, verse 4, it says this. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. That's a word that means uh, wrongdoing. He was crushed for our iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah says that someone is coming to deal with this. And this is important. Because God is not saying that all the wrong that has happened in this world, all the wrong that we have done, He's not saying it's not important. He's not saying, oh, no, it's fine. You, it's fine. We'll deal. It's, it's fine. Just we'll forget about it. No. Justice has to be done. It has to be dealt with. There is a debt that needs to be paid. We have stolen from God and stolen from each other, and shalom needs to be put right. But this debt is too high for us. Who could pay it? Who among us? Who, who could pay this? And so in steps, Jesus Jesus, who never did anything wrong, who spent his entire life making peace, bringing sight to the blind, healing and restoring the world as it's supposed to be, true shalom, was everything that Jesus did. And he is the one who takes it all upon himself, crushed for our iniquity, for all of our brokenness, the brokenness of the whole world upon him. Jesus comes and steps into this situation so that shalom can happen. Because if you accept Jesus into your life, if you take that choice and say, yes, I accept this forgiveness, I accept him dying on my behalf, then shalom can enter your life. Then reconciliation with God can happen in your heart. And more than that, reconciliation with each other can happen. And you get stories like, the families of murder victims forgiving their, the people who murdered their children. You get stories like people in concentration camps 
forgiving the SS guards who murdered their sister. This forgiveness flows from the cross. It flows from knowing Jesus and having deep peace in your heart because you have Jesus. But there's more. Because Jesus just didn't just die for us to have personal relationship with God and for each other, but for the whole world to be made right. On his shoulders, the entire brokenness of the world was there, hanging on him when he died on that cross. And that was his mission. Not to restore just me or all of you here, but everyone, the entire world, put right exactly as it should be. Now a question for you. If you were going to deal with all the injustice in the world, if you were going to bring peace to the whole world, how would you do it? Because just before Jesus, there was another guy who claimed to be the son of God. His name was Augustus. That's what that word means, Augustus, son of God. And he was the emperor of Rome. And when the Romans went into a new city or a new province, they went in and they said, this is the good news of the coming king. Peace has come. I reckon that sounds familiar. Because the word for that kind of announcement is euangelion in Greek. It means, which we translate as gospel. The good news of, a com- of the coming king is a completely political statement. That they, this kind of king has come, and his rule is here, and don't challenge his peace. Because if you challenge his peace, you will die. That's the point of crucifixion. That's why people were crucified, because it's saying, this is what happens to you if you challenge the peace of Rome. This is what you will get. And yet, Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't conquer the world by force and tell everyone, this is how you have to behave and kill anyone who dares challenge him. No. He takes all that brokenness on himself and surrenders it. He said, if you should follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. We are are called, he set an example when he died on that cross. He set an example of surrender, that this is how Christians are to behave, to, to die to ourselves, to give up our pride, our ambition, the things that we really hold on to that stop shalom from coming into this world and go, I give it up for you, Jesus. So we can forgive those who have truly wronged us. We can forgive the injustice, the horrible things that have happened to us. That is the calling that Jesus has put on our lives. The end of the book of Isaiah, we are left with a choice. Are you on God's side? Or are you on the side of wealth and power? Do you look at the world? Do you look at the world and go, I benefit from this? I am white and I am rich. And in my case, I am male. I am at the top of the ladder. If I don't do anything, I benefit. My life is, to be honest, pretty great. Why should I worry about it? But God doesn't do that. He looks at me and goes, "Uh uh-uh, no. You need to give that up. You have power by complete chance. You have power. You're lucky enough to be born like this. Here it is. Here is the example 
of someone giving it away because Christ, who had everything, literally everything, gave up everything for me, for all of you, for everyone. And that's the example he calls us to.